We are meeting a woman this morning who described herself as Bala. Well, that's a word we don't use. In fact, it's a Hebrew word that we can't even really translate. But even though we can't really translate it, I think think you're going to understand what it means to be Bala. Um, Sarah and her husband Abraham were nomadic people. So they were a lot like the Bedouins that we have in the Middle East in our world today. And I'll just tell you, when you're nomadic people, when you're Bedouins, uh, fabric, cloth is gold. Uh, you use cloth for almost everything, for cleaning things, for clothing, for protection, for almost everything. You use it over and over and over again. And when it can't be used for its original purpose anymore, then you use it to repair other cloth so that it can go on. And you just use it and use it and use it and use it until finally it gets to that place where the, the cloth is so brittle, you know, so filthy, so thread-worn that it can't be used for anything. And the only thing you can do is throw it away. And when the cloth has gotten to that point where it's good for nothing except to be thrown away and maybe burned, it's called bala. And when we meet Sarah in Genesis 18, that's what she thinks about herself. I am Bala. There's no future for me. No usefulness for me. Again, I I, I don't know that we have a word for it in English, do you? It's always translated worn out. That seems awfully weak for that particular word. I think Sarah, if she would have been coming to the 11 o'clock service and had seen that the pastor is doing a series called Turning Points, which makes us think that there can be a, a tomorrow can be better than yesterday, right? Because a turning point into something better, she would have scoffed. She, she saw that there was not even a chance that anything in her life could ever change. But it did. You want to look at her story? I want to start by looking at the setting. We've got to get ourselves back into our shoes. This was a long time ago in a world far, far away. It's nothing like the world that we are in. And I've called this setting just, it's an ancient situation. But what it teaches us is an ever-familiar human experience. Get that? It's going to be a world very different from 21st century Southern California. But I think we're going to say what she felt. I think I can understand it. So to get at it... um, Years before we get to her in Genesis 18, her husband uh, Abraham had had a visit from the Lord uh, telling him that he was going to be blessed to be a blessing. Uh, If you were here last week, some guy speaking in a hologram brought a message uh, from from that. I can tell who was not here. You don't know what I'm talking about. Ask someone. Came to Abraham and said, you're going to be a blessing. You are going to be the father of many nations. Through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. Well, a number of years went by, and by Genesis 15, nothing had happened. And Abraham began to wonder, did I hear this thing right? And began praying, Lord, did I hear you right? Is this going to happen? So God gave him a confirmation of his promise. And man, it's probably in a way that you and I often need it. We need something really dramatic to be able to see this thing with special effects, right? And so that's what God gave me. He said, Abraham, go and you divide up some of these animals and put them on different sides of the field. And then in the dead of night, there was a nighttime vision when the Lord appeared to him in this floating, smoking pot passing through the middle of the field and a flaming torch going back and forth. I'm telling you, Abraham would never forget it. 
How could he ever forget it? The first time it might have just been somebody saying this is going to happen. This time he had something that was going to be indelibly printed in his mind. But Sarah hadn't been there either time. So she just has to trust her husband's word for this. Wives, you would always trust your husband's words, right, (laughs) about that. So when you get to Sarah in Genesis 16, she is frustrated. She hasn't had any children. And if this God had ever said, is real, and had ever said anything to her husband Abraham, she thinks, I've got to help him out. And out of her frustration, and some of us get impatient like that, right? Out of her frustration, she goes to her beautiful young servant named Hagar, And say, you go to Abraham and have a child with him through whom he can be a blessing to all of these many, many people. And of course, knowing men, he did it, right? He did it. And then the thing that's just so frustrating for Sarah about that, quickly, immediately, uh, Hagar had a child. So now the problem really wasn't Abraham's. Sarah seemed to be the problem, and you can just imagine she is just so bitter and angry. I want want you to try to imagine the life of this woman, the the thing that she had valued the most and that her society valued in a woman the most, the ability to have a child, and as Genesis had talked about, to multiply the earth, seemed to have been kept from her. Uh, Her husband, the relationship with her husband, And so obviously when you read through chapters 15, 16, 17, become frayed and distant. I imagine that she was very, very lonely. Uh, Years before when God had told Abraham to leave everything behind and go, she had gone with him. So she was miles from her biological family. And actually now that she was so old that she uh, uh, probably had nobody that she knew that who was still alive. And I'm guessing that she was angry with this God who seemed to promise so much but never delivered. Never delivered. And so Sarah looks at herself and she says, I am Baba. Do you see it? The only purpose for my life is to be thrown away. There's no value to my living anymore. As I've been preparing this message and reading this moving story of Sarah, I've, I've, I've thought, will this have any relevance to us when we come to uh, a church in Southern California? I mean, what world could be different from a Bedouin's life from a Southern Californians, right? Can you relate to her at all? Can, can, can you feel at all what, what she was feeling when she felt like I've lost something and, and I'm not really sure that there's really any value for me in the future? I've been asking about this all week and one of our great pastors, my colleague, uh, Pastor Jesse Oakes, pastor to high school students, he wrote me a wonderful um, note to encourage me and this is what he said. He said, you know, sometimes dollar bills can get to be so ratty and worn that they're no longer fit for trade. We, we've seen those. Banks have incentives to exchange those, and so they send them back to the federal government. What the federal government does is they reclaim the worn-out bills, they destroy them, and then print new ones. Uh, Then Jesse wrote this. So we read the Bible, and we see over and over again that God reclaims us. But he doesn't destroy us. Rather, he turns our lives around, a turning point, from that toward having life to the full, 
making us, along with everything else, new. So Jesse wrote, but I I think a lot of people today feel like Sarah did. And it's especially after a big loss. Think about it. A death. Breakup. A divorce. A job loss. Getting rejected from a college. You could go on and on where we've lost something. We thought, I have to have that. And then Jesse said, I, I think a lot of parents feel like this on given weeks, especially single parents. I, I think Jesse is right. What do you think? Uh, I'm guessing all of us in one way, maybe not to the depths of Sarah, I'm guessing all of us have sometimes felt the way she did. And if not, I'm, I'm guessing all of us know somebody who, who feels like that, feel like Bala. And so today I'm going to be trying to tell you that we who are made in the image of God, and as I was walking you come through, coming in today, everyone that I saw coming in was made in the image of God. So I'll just tell you that. We who are made in the image of God are never Bala in His sight. Wherever we are in our lives, whatever has been in our past, there is a future for us. So let me just show you a text of, of, of something God said to a young man who much later felt like Bala, and I'll be looking at his story later, to Jeremiah, who felt like his life was over when even his family rejected him. And God says, no, 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 no. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. My plans are to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. And a future. Hallelujah. All right. How'd this happen? The turning point. And here's what I want you to see about the God we've come to worship today. God is so personal with us. He comes to us and deals with us in ways specially suited to us as individuals. What what I want you to see is that God was going to come and speak to Sarah. But he was going to do it in a way so different from the way that he had dealt with Abraham. With Sarah, we're not going to see any smoking pots, any flashing swords. It's not going to be in a night vision. Instead, it just starts so normally. In fact, it, it begins by God speaking to Abraham, her husband. It was just a day like any other out there in the desert community. Abraham, in the heat of the day, was doing what men did in those communities. While their wives were working, they were sitting there talking with one another. That's what, that's what men did. Now, that's really changed, hasn't it? The wives, that's, re- that's really changed. So he was just sitting there t- having conversation while she was in the tent working when these three weary travelers come past. And, and he doesn't even know who they are. Some people think that he does because you'll see, if you, did you hear it as Valerie was reading it? He immediately goes out and, and, and gets uh, food prepared for them and good drink prepared for them and fellowship prepared for them. And so people say, well, he must have had a sense that these were somehow special visitors. But I don't think so. I, I don't know if, uh, if you've ever traveled much, and especially you've been in places where people do not have very many resources. I'll tell you, the hospitality is always the greatest. And among these traveling people, these nomadic people, they knew that there wasn't a Langham Hotel down the road. (laughs) Just go stay down there. They knew that if a person was going to have any food, 
anything to drink. They were going to have to provide it. And, and with that open heart for hospitality that you have, he rushes out and he gets the very best drink. He gets the very best meat, the best calf. I said in the first service, Don and Wilma Taylor were here. This was Taylor meat, not just the meat you could get anywhere. This was the best thing. And put on the greatest banquet to show them. So there they were, these men conversing there in the heat of the day. When you come to verse 9, and it becomes clear something more is afoot here. So one of them says to Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? Hmm, hmm, hmm. He knows her name. You think Abraham might begin to sense, uh-uh, this may be more than just a weary traveler coming here. Now, you've got to remember this. They were there next to the tent. These Jewish storytellers in the Bible, they are so great. So they have them there next to the tent. That meant they spoke in a place where Sarah could hear them, and obviously they spoke in a tone to make sure that they hear it. Hear it. So look at verse 10. So now one of them, and this time for the first time, is called the Lord. And many people say that this phrase is used for the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. It, one way or another, this is the way God was going to bring his message to Sarah. So one of them, identified as the Lord, said to Abraham, I will surely come to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. I, just the way it's told, you know she was supposed to hear it. Because God's blessing of having a child come through the line was not just for Abraham. It was for Sarah too. It was through Abraham and Sarah. And it was going to happen. Because this blessing has made it all the way here to Pasadena today. You know that, right? So what God promised actually happened. And Sarah heard it. And you can see it in her response. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, Am I the bala to no pleasure? Now I think that this beautiful story is one of the most misunderstood in the entire Bible, and I don't want you to miss it. It, it is one of the most moving stories about the grace of and the care of God for each one of us, even when sometimes we wait and wait and wait and we have no idea where he is. God is there ready to do something we could never imagine. This is one of those great stories. But I've got to show you some of the things that are missed in many of our translations. Ready to deal with me? Uh, first, I want you to notice this laugh uh, that Sarah engages in. She laughs when she hears, you're going to have a son. Sarah is going to give birth to a son. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is tzahak is a word that, uh, for a mingling of emotions, but it's mostly an emotion of joy, yes, mingled with some shock. I just want you to know that it, uh, even though many people say this, when, when, when Sarah laughs, she's not saying, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to believe a word of that. that. That's not what this laugh is about. The laugh is much more communicating something like, after all these years, can this kind of good thing be real? I mean, nothing like this has ever happened. Uh, can I really experience this kind of thing that I've, that I've always longed for? Now, you've got to remember, Sarah had been faithless 
back in chapter 16. She hadn't believed God. Out of frustration, she had told her, her, her maiden, uh, Hagar, go to my husband. And then after Hagar had gone there, she got mad at Hagar and ran her off into loneliness. She had mistreated her. So this laughter in one sense is saying something like this, and maybe you can feel this. Can I really believe that the God who made the universe is willing to love me and to use me even after I've disobeyed him? Can he give my marriage back to me? Can God give a 90-year-old woman a child through that 99-year-old man? (laughs) That's what this laughter is about. I understand a little bit of the laughter. I've tried to think of an illustration. It's as close as I can get. It's not perfect. But it's one that I'll never, never forget. You know, my mom was the 11th of 11 children. Um, Growing up in Pocahontas County of West Virginia, they didn't have much. Uh, Her father, my grandfather, was mostly a handyman. He did anything. He did anything to raise enough funds for the family. But he is a farmer. But if you know Pocahontas County of West Virginia, it's up there in the hills. I'll tell you, the farms are mostly rocks. So not much grows. All, all this is to say they didn't have very much. And then the war came, World War II. And uh, most of the boys of the family um, had to go off to the war. And so the others who were left had to work to sustain the family. And so my mom had to leave school. Now, my mom was a brilliant woman. She, was, you know, she passed away last year. My mom was an absolutely brilliant woman. Uh, she could still do my second year Latin when I went to high school. And at the end, was better. I mean, this was years after she had had it. I think as a junior higher. She had this great, great, great mind. And she always wanted a valued education. Valued education. But she had never been able to finish school. And all of her life, and some of you, I think, can understand this, all of her life, she regretted never having been able to, um, to finish her education. Felt like she had lost out on things. And then, of course, uh, she pushed her son... <laughs> to get as far as I could. And I'll tell you, after I had finished my work at Marquette University and had received this diploma that said Doctor of Philosophy, Gregory L. Waybright, first time Chris and I went back home, I took the document with me and we were sitting on this little couch in the living room and I opened it up and showed it to her. And do you know what she did? She laughed. I, I know she wept. She also laughed with this thought, is it possible? that my son could have done this. It's not quite where she was, but are you beginning? This is the kind of laugh that Sarah is looking at. Is it possible that God has not forgotten me and my marriage and my family? And that's underscored as you come down just a, a little bit later. Her, her comment, can one who is bala again have pleasure? And, and the Hebrew word edhana is a word that's almost always used by the Jewish people for the, the pleasure and the joy intended for a marriage relationship. From Genesis 2, where two are to become one. So it has to do with, with sexual pleasure. It has to do with a, a relationship that Adam was alone and, and now you can have a, an open and transparent and trust-filled relationship. She hadn't had that for years. She hadn't had it for years. And now they were so old, and a part of it seemed impossible. A child, how is that ever going to happen? Now, I could turn this into a PG-13 sermon, but, but I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, you just got to know what happened. They had a son. 
And it wasn't a virgin birth. Think about it. This, this, this Bala person was no longer that. But being able to have a relationship. Fulfillment. And, and the son would be called Isaac. The child of laughter. Because God had brought laughter back into her life. And then this response, to underscore the way I'm reading this in verse 14. The response of the Lord to her and to Abraham is this. It's translated, is anything too hard for the Lord? And if you read Hebrew scholars, they'll all say, well, that's not usually the way that one word is translated, too hard. It's usually wonderful. I'm just telling you, that's what it's supposed to be here too. Sarah, you think God is only ignoring you or has forgotten you or means harm for you, but he means good for you. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? It's referring to the God who speaks and speaks wonders in this world in Genesis chapter 1. Sarah, I can do better things in your life than you could ever imagine. You have to wait for me a long time. But is anything too wonderful for God to do in our lives? To forgive us, to draw us in again, to use us again. And then I love the response of the Lord in verse 15 to the fact that she tried to, embarrassingly, she said, no, I didn't laugh. And the way he responds is not, ugh. There you go again. You've disobeyed me again. I'm just going to wipe you out. But he just turns to her and he says, You did laugh. Sarah, you haven't laughed for a long time. You have felt like Bala. But now you are going to laugh. And laugh. The point is that this once worn out and embittered woman became a woman who could laugh again. That's the point of this. And I've been thinking, no longer bala, but beautiful. All right, what do we learn from this? I have a thousand things I want us to learn, but we have communion, and you won't stay that long. So let's just get at a few things. The never old lesson that these real-life encounters, such as we saw on the video and such as we read about with Sarah, teach us not only about ourselves, they teach us about God. One of the things you've got to see is that this story in Genesis 18 comes in Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, it opens essentially this way. People, at any time and in any place, you intuitively know when you've been made in God's image, when you're human, you intuitively know that there has to be more to this world than just material things. And deep down inside, you know there has to be someone greater than yourself. You open up the book of Genesis, and God declares, I am. And I'm going to tell you what I'm like. And what does he tell us? Well, first, he tells us in Genesis 1 that he is a God who takes things. You know Genesis 1, right? From chaos to order. From darkness, let there be light. To light. From um, emptiness with nothing on the world to beauty. What does that look like in our everyday lives? Sarah shows us. She has a place in our lives. And this is where you and I can relate to this. I mean, we're not nomadic people here in Southern California. Well, not very much so. We're not Bedouins. And yet when you read this, the human experience is the same, right? Right? You feel this. And, and now God is going to say, I am the God the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And the kind of God I am, I told you I'm like this. Things may seem chaotic, but when I'm at work, they won't stay that way. Order is going to come about. Things are going to seem dark. You're going to say there's no hope, but I'm the God who says let there be light and it happens. And I'm the God who started with nothing and ended up with something very good and that's what I'm going to do in your life. So sometimes we come into a church like this and we say there's some things I want God to do for me and I only want the thing. And God says sometimes I'll offer that. But my real, my real work is to change you. Sometimes we want something God will give. We don't want to be changed. I can almost imagine, you know, when, when we've complained long enough, and Sarah had probably complained a long time, the only joy we get in life is having people hear us complain. Do you know anybody like that? Nobody at Lake Avenue Church, I, I, I know. But he's going to say, I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm not going to leave you in that self-destructive way. Yes, I'm going to give you pleasure. But I'm going to restore your relationship to your husband. I'm going to give you a family. And I'm going to restore your relationship to me. This is the kind of God we believe in. And that's why I want you to have hope when you come to church today. Whatever you may have brought in with you. He's a God who changes that things in that way. Then second, I want you to see that the God you and I believe in walks with people. And that's Genesis 2. There's this beautiful phrase in Genesis 2 where God walked with uh, the man. And it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom for an intimate, close relationship where he deals with each one of us individually. And that's why I wanted to show you how different the relationship was, the way that God dealt with Abraham, who needed this big bombastic break-in of God, and Sarah, who needed to hear that God was not done with her yet. God knows us individually. He knows just what we need, and he asks us, he asks us to trust him. God walks with people. And this is an important point for this series and turning points because sometimes we think we hear somebody's story, like Robin and Arlene. And, and even though we can see the relationship of that to Sarah, I mean, just think being put into a holding camp here in the United States. There must have been times they thought that this was hopeless. And God says, no, 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 there is always hope. I'm going to do something great in your lives. You can see that. But we may think, I need to have a similar kind of situation. Well, God may break into your life in a very different way. We, we churchgoers have always been guilty of thinking the way God spoke to me is the only way he can speak. Sometimes we, we, we think that the way God spoke, the kind of music God spoke to me through, that's the only kind of music he speaks through. No, no, no. God, God knows us. And he knows our language. And he knows how to speak to us. The, the old Puritans thought this. They thought there was only one path that you come to Jesus. And that one path is that you, uh, you go into utter darkness and utter despair and you feel totally worthless, kind of like Sarah did, and then God breaks in and you thank him for his grace and you give your life to him. Well, uh, Reverend Timothy Edwards thought that. The only true believers had come to God that way. And then he had this son, Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards didn't come to God that way. He was reading the Bible one day, and he came to this text. Now, unto the king, eternal, immortal, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. You know that text? And he said, God is. And I know I can come to know him through Jesus. I give you my life. And he was made alive to God. For years, his father doubted whether he was a genuine believer. <laughs> because he thought there was only one way. And God says, no, I know each one of you. And each one of your stories will be different. You'll always come through. 
Jesus. But it will be a way that is specially designed for each one of us because God walks with us. C.S. Lewis knew this. He, he had come to God in a way so different from his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, he wrote his Narnia Chronicles to highlight this. You've read those, haven't you? Some of you have. Uh, the, the, uh, in the first one, uh, they got into the new world by walking through this wardrobe. And they kept thinking, that's the only way to get in. But nobody ever got in that way again. If you try, say, I've got to go that way, well, all you end up with is banging your head against the wall or splinters in your lips or something. No, no, no. It's always through Aslan, Christ figure, that they're drawn. But God dealt with each one in a different way. And I, I just want you to always know that. You may not understand why God isn't doing in your life what many of us may say he's done in ours. You, you may say, Pastor, how long do I have to wait to really see the difference God will make? Do I have to wait as long as Sarah did? I will tell you this. He is worth waiting for. And God is trustworthy. And his plans for you are plans never to do you harm, but to do you good. Third thing I, I simply want to leave you with, Genesis 3. God seeks after people. He loves people. He knows when we're running away from him, he seeks after us. Genesis 3, you know the story. He'd been walking with people, but people wanted to be God, so they walked away from God, and then all the shame and guilt came in. They were ashamed to be with one another. They put on those fig clothings. doesn't last very long, I imagine. And then there, there they are hiding in the bushes from the God who'd made the bushes. This is ridiculous when you think about it. And so God comes, but it's not, where are you impudent little nothings? But with this poignant phrase, where are you? And immediately he provides for them much better clothing and immediately begins a plan for the redemption of people. A people through whom he himself would come through his son, Jesus, who would live the life that all of us were meant to live and then none of us has. And then die the death we deserve, but we don't have to. Because he did. And now through him, we can be no longer Bala, but be beautiful again. So I'm telling you, if, if you have areas of your life where you've been walking away from God, or you want, God seeks after you. And he makes this declaration, if, if we will turn toward him, he will make himself known. He will make himself known because he is seeking after you. You're made in his image. You're never worthless in his sight. He wants you to laugh again if you think you can't. And that brings us to communion. How much does God love us? How much will he sacrifice to remake us? So we see Jesus at that last supper. He, he had already said, Luke 19.10, this is why I've come. I have come to seek and to rescue those who feel like Bala, those who are lost. That's why I've come. But he knew what it would cost to remake us, that we all need forgiveness of things in our lives that are wrong. But he says, I love you so much that this is what I will do. And I never want you to forget it. When you gather until I come back again, 
I want you to take out bread. When it is broken, I want you to remember this is my body. And it is given for you. And whenever you walk away from me and need to come back and say, is forgiveness available? I want you to remember this is my blood. It is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you always to know that in my sight, you are never bala. That I have a future for you. If only you will trust me. Thank you, Lord. To his glory. Amen. Amen.